history, according to Luke 24, part 2, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Well, good morning, Metro. And good morning to everyone in the nursery and to everyone watching in our online community. I just want to also give a very special warm welcome to all of our newcomers, especially for those who joined us last Sunday at Easter service. Didn't we have a great Easter service last Sunday? It was powerful, absolutely powerful. And uh, thank you if you decided to join us again this week and maybe join us for the next few weeks. And we hope that, you know, God will just continue to impact your life as you're here with us. Um, today's kind of like a bittersweet moment for me because, as Pastor Sunita mentioned, we're sort of hitting the, the tail end of this uh, 16-month journey that we've taken our church on in the Gospel of Luke. And I hope that it's been really an enriching experience as it's been for us as a pastoral staff. Let's just give it a round of applause to our pastoral staff for bringing the Word of God to us for the past 16 months. And... Um, Next Sunday, we conclude, it's, it's, the, it's, uh, it's focusing on the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so today, Jesus is going to take us to the road to Emmaus. And uh, as we go to that road to Emmaus, he's going to meet two of his followers. They're young followers, but they don't recognize him. And you can only imagine maybe kind of the sadness that came out of even Jesus' heart when, when he saw that his followers didn't even recognize him. And we're going we're gonna to kind of unpack why they weren't able to recognize him. But I don't know if you've ever had an experience in your own life where somebody that you've loved, somebody that you love, somebody who might even be a family member, but they just for somehow don't recognize you anymore. And I've experienced that. The last two years of my father's life, his Parkinson's disease had gotten really aggressive and uh, his dementia had gotten worse. And there was a point in time where he couldn't remember us anymore. He didn't remember my mom's name, didn't remember, you know, my kids' names. And it was really sad to see that. And we find that even in this story here, that these are followers of Jesus. They're young, but they don't recognize him. They don't. And last Sunday, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he resurrected from the dead. And really, what that means is that it's not just so that God could forgive us of our sins, but really at the end, it's about so that God can enter into a meaningful relationship with us. That is the reason why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come die for us on the cross and resurrect from the dead so that we can have a meaningful relationship with him. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the story as, as Jesus takes us to the road to Emmaus, and we're going to learn how we can engage with God in such a way where we can have a meaningful relationship with him, but also we need to learn better in how we can have a meaningful relationship with one another. And the older I'm getting, the more I realize how difficult this is, how difficult it is for us to enter into meaningful relationships with one another. And I hope that today that God would, would sort of burn in your hearts, and we're going to look at that today and what that really looks like, but that you would be able to engage in those kinds of relationships because it will be a reflection of your relationship with God. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 13 and following. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 and following. I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked them, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, 
He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give thanks to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, and this is our prayer for you today, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, thank you for the gift that you've given to us, which is the scriptures. Thank you that we get to open up this text week after week, and we get to learn deeper of your ministry to us and the significance of what it means to be a follower of you. Lord, thank you for dying for us on the cross and resurrecting from the dead. Thank you that that wasn't just so that our sins could be forgiven, but so that we can enter into a meaningful relationship with you. And so, God, I pray for all of us in this room. I pray, God, that you would help us to learn how we can do that. And, God, that there would be no other passion, no other desire, no other goal that we set for our lives, but to live in a deeper, more meaningful relationship with you. Teach us how we can do that. So I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, that it will be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. Now, why didn't these young followers recognize Jesus? It says in verse 16, it says, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, that's important. Did God sort of blind them from recognizing Jesus? That's really not it. You see, for a typical Jewish person, we talked about this last Sunday, their understanding of the resurrection was very different than what Jesus was teaching them. They believed that the resurrection was going to happen all together at the same time. They never dared believe that Jesus was going to resurrect before everyone else. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, but Peter, Jesus told him that he would do that, right? Has anyone ever given you some instruction, but because of your presuppositions, you didn't listen to those instructions? It kind of went in one year and out the other? Can you resonate with that? Well, that's basically what happened. Even though Jesus was teaching them this whole thing of resurrection, that he would, res- he would rise from the dead in three days, they didn't believe him because they were taught that the resurrection was going to happen together at the same time and no one was going to resurrect before, before them. 
And so they believed in that. Furthermore, they believed that the Messiah was only going to bring glory and was going to live on earth in glory. They never had an understanding that the Messiah was going to suffer the way Jesus did. And so because of that, they couldn't recognize Jesus because he was dead. The cross proved that he was not the Messiah, not that he was the Messiah, but he had resurrected from the dead. And we see that this resurrected Jesus Christ, we see him in all his splendor and his beauty. And what we learn about the resurrection is that it's not just, again, it's not just our sins being forgiven, but when we think about the sins being forgiven, because that's really important for us as Christians, we can't really enter into a relationship with God unless our sins are forgiven. A lot of us, we've been taught that it happened only on the cross. A lot of our songs reflect that. A lot of our songs that talk about Jesus' death on the cross, it talks about our sins being forgiven. That, that's sort of a semi-correct way of understanding that. In order to understand the forgiveness of our sins, which the fancy word for that is atonement, it was really a three-step process. And if you've been with us for a while, you should know this by now. But our sins, that process of our sins being forgiven, it began on Christmas Day when Jesus came into this world. And it continued when he was crucified on the cross. It was very important that he died for us on the cross. But it didn't come into full completion until Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And when he resurrected from the dead, that was the completion of the atonement process where now our sins are forgiven. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And so the resurrection completed the atonement process of our sins being forgiven and it began a new beginning for us to enter into a more meaningful relationship with God. That's what it's about. And on this road to Emmaus, Jesus is going to teach us how we can enter into a more meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. And the first thing we learn in this story is this, is that we have a meaningful relationship with Jesus when we can be honest with when we can learn to be honest with Jesus. Look at verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked them, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Cleopas and, and the other follower of Jesus were honest. Now, they were honest with Jesus, even though they didn't recognize who he was, all right? But they were honest. And here's the thing, if you want to have a meaningful relationship with Jesus... You have to learn to be honest with him. Now, I know this is like a no-brainer, but so few of us actually engage with God at that kind of honest level. In fact, I do believe we live in a culture today where we do value honesty, but we seldom practice it. We really do. We value honesty. We think it's good to be honest, but we don't really practice it, do we? I mean, we don't want to go to work, and so what do we do? We call in sick, but are you really sick? I mean, when I used to work in the marketplace and I didn't want to go to work, I'd make sure I'd get up really early in the morning. You know, your voice sounds weird in the morning. And I would call my boss. I'd be like, Kelly, I don't feel good today. I can't go into work. I'm sick. Right? So, like, we value honesty, but we don't practice it. We really don't. In our businesses and how we work, we don't value 
we value it, but we don't practice it. For some of us, it's because of your dishonesty that you've actually gone ahead of other people. And that's a dangerous place. We live in that kind of world today. We value honesty, but very seldom do we actually practice it. And I, do, I, would, I would say also that in our relationship with God, not many of us are very honest with him. Are you honest with him in your prayers, or do you fake it? Do you fake your prayers? And what do I mean by that when I say faking your prayer? Meaning you're not fully honest because you feel like when you go before God in prayer, there has to be the sense of reverence before him. So because you have to have this reverence for him, that you really can't fully process and some of the things that you might be going through in your life. And you're unwilling to be honest with him because you think being honest with him in prayer would mean that you would have to sin. I used to fake it in prayer all the time. If, if you come to this church, you know my story. But if you're kind of new here, you probably don't. I grew up in a home where um, my father would struggle with alcohol, and he'd come, and he'd be quite violent with my sisters and I. And uh, the person he was most violent with was my mom. No child should ever have to see their mom get beat like that and have a deep sense of fear that perhaps maybe she might not live. And so... That's a, so you can only imagine there was a lot of baggage that I carried on. And when I became a Christian in sophomore year in high school, I didn't process any of that stuff. I didn't grow up ever thinking about that because I had a lot of shame. Nobody knew about my past. And that's the one, one of the things you got to realize. Do you know shame is the fuel for our dishonesty? Because we have so much shame in certain things, a lot of times we don't want to be honest with people because they're shameful if we are, Right? And so because of that shame, I wasn't being very honest with people. And when I became a Christian, it became like this radical for him, but I couldn't really process what I was feeling. And a lot of times I would just say, Lord Jesus, I'm going through some hard times, but I thank you for the trial. I thank you. I'm picking up my cross and I'm following after you. I was faking it in prayer. And I went to seminary and this, and this sister, of this, uh, this friend of mine, during like our break, we were taking a Greek class together, and she says, Peter, how do you pray? I said, audibly. I pray, you know, I pray. I pray out loud. I pray audibly. And she said, you should try to write out your prayers. And I said, sister, please. I was like, I pray for a long time. I don't want to write out my prayers because it's going to take a long time for me to write that out. And she said, you know, Peter, you should try because when you actually write out your prayers, you can process what you're feeling better with God. And so I did. And I started writing up my prayers. And I literally thought I was going to hell because I opened up this Pandora's box of unresolved emotions that I never knew I carried and had towards God. And what I learned over the years of doing this, I learned that God is big enough to handle it. And all he was asking me to do was to be honest with him. That if I can just be honest with what I'm feeling towards him and other people and in that authentic engagement with God, that there's intimacy. And what you have to realize, honestly, because, you know, we're living our lives every single day. And a lot of us, we don't have intimacy. We don't have meaningful relationships because we don't know how to be honest with, other, with each other. We don't know how to be honest with God. And so because we're not honest, we can't be in that kind of relationship with each other because you were put on this earth to be fully known. And when you live your life with secrets, how can you expect you to enter into this meaningful relationship with God and other people? And, and, and I'm telling you right now, it has to be much easier to have meaningful relationships with people that you can see and touch. 
than with a God that you can't see and touch. And for so many of us, we've dichotomized our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, but you cannot sit there and tell me that you have a meaningful relationship with God when you don't have meaningful relations with other people. You can't sit there and tell me that you actually have a meaningful relationship with God when your marriage is really screwed up. Because your marriage is a reflection of your relationship with God. And so can we embrace a sense of honesty? Can you be honest before God and go to him and just be very forthright in what's going on in your life? Because when you can do that, then you know what's going to end up happening? You're going to be able to engage with God in such a way. And I talked about this last Sunday, but this idea of being Abba's child, you're only going to know that if you embrace the honesty of who you are. So many of us, we are living our lives in denial because you have not allowed people to speak honest truths about you. And anytime somebody's trying to be honest with you, you're so defensive. And you think that somebody's attacking you. Why do you think your spouse is attacking you when they're honest with you? Why would you think somebody who actually does care for you, who wants to be honest with you, why would you think they're trying to hurt you? But so many times when, when, when we actually engage in an honest conversation, we can't deal with it because we feel like somebody's attacking us. And do you realize that if you live in isolation, you're not going to fully know things about yourself. The only way you're going to fully be fully self-aware is you've got to invite other people to be honest with you. That if you don't allow them to be honest with you, you're not going to grow as a person. And you're certainly not going to be able to accept yourself as being a child of God because you're living your life with illusions and you're living your life in denial and Jesus did not come and die for the fake you. He didn't come and die for this person that you are in denial of. He came and died for the warts that, have, that you have on your bodies and all of that. And you've got to be willing to accept it because the only way you can have healing and growth is when you can learn to accept the, some honest truths about yourself. Cleopas was being honest. And eventually, you find what Jesus ends up doing as a result of that through them. We have to live our lives today. The resurrection teaches us that we have to start living our lives in a way where we can be honest with people in our lives and honest with God. Stop faking it in prayer, Metro. You can be who you are. If you read some of my, I hope, I hope nobody ever hacks into my journal. <laughs> Please don't. And if you do, because you're good with, because I don't know computers, and if you fix my computer, just, like, if you hack into it, don't tell me that you read it. <laughs> I'd be mortified. Because you may not think I'm a Christian. I have stuff there about my wife. I don't ever want her to read. I have stuff there about God, about other people. But if I can't be honest with God in that way, how am I going to expect God to deal with me in a very honest way and grow? I know you value honesty, but can we begin to start practicing it? Practicing it with one another and practicing it in our engagement with God. That's how we have a meaningful relationship with him and others. Second, we have a meaningful relationship with Jesus when we interpret the Bible. All right, stay with me on this a little bit, all right? Stay with me. Look at verse 25. 
Now, they were telling them about Jesus, about being crucified on the cross. You remember the story? And, uh, and look what he says in verse 25. He said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, as, as these followers are speaking honestly with Jesus, even though they don't know this is Jesus, Jesus now is engaging with them in an honest way. All right? And he says in verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then I enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus spent some time. They were being very honest with Jesus about what happened. And obviously Jesus realized that their understanding of the Messiah was really defunct. It was lacking in many ways. And so Jesus spends ample time with them, interpreting the Bible for them, teaching them that the Messiah had to suffer before he is glorified. Their understanding of the Messiah was somebody to come, defeat the Roman Empire so that Israel can be the most powerful country in the world again. That was what they were told and that was what they believed in. And so Jesus spends time interpreting the scriptures to them so that they could teach them that when the cross happened, when Jesus died on the cross, it was a deal breaker for every Jewish person that believed in Jesus to be the Messiah. There was nothing about the cross that would convince them that he is the Messiah. And so Jesus is teaching them now from the prophets, starting all the way from Moses to all the prophets, teaching them scripture that the Messiah had to suffer. It's really great and it's wonderful that all of you spend time reading the Bible and that's fantastic. And we have to continue to do that, meditate on the scripture but what, I, what we learned here is that in order to have a continual, more intimate, more meaningful relationship with God and Jesus Christ, we have to also be, a, we have to be able to interpret the scriptures better. Now, it's not, you don't have to do it necessarily all by yourself. But what we find here is that these, these two young followers had Jesus do that for them, to help them. And I want you to understand that there are actually people in this church, our pastoral staff, other folks, that actually know more of the Bible than you and me right? And so you have to be okay with that. And you have to be open to sitting and learning the scriptures from people who know more than you. I have some friends who love the game of golf. They're good. I'm horrible, but they're good. 80s. If you golf in the 80s, I think you're pretty good. You don't need to take more lessons, but they do. They spend more money. And they take more lessons. And I wonder why. Because they want to be better. They want to get better. Even though they know the game of golf, they know the sport. They have this passion to want to get better and better and better. You have ever had, are we ever passionate about something? You always want to get better and better and better about it, right? And it's the same thing with the Bible. That as you and I read it, I hope that we'll have more passion for the word of God. But that passion should lead us to realize that there are other people who actually know it better than you. That you might be able to surround yourself with so that you can learn from them. Does that make sense? And in order for us to do that, then we'll be more passionate about the scripture, therefore being able to have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God, because as you learn more about God, like these young followers were, they said, did not our hearts burn when he was teaching the scriptures to us? Did not our hearts burn? That's our prayer, that our hearts would burn for that. We afford ourselves an opportunity to come every Sunday where the word of God is open and you get to hear from it. And that's an opportunity for you to hear and, and, and grow in deeper understanding and interpretation of what the Bible is all about, especially as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke. 
So I encourage you to do that. Can I also encourage you to make sure you buy a study Bible if you don't have one? The study Bible is great because you can, you can start reading the notes on there about you know, the historical significance, the backgrounds and different things. Because I'm going to be honest, the Bible is very confusing. It can be really hard and discouraging for you to grasp around. And maybe because for some of you, it's hard for you to grapple with and understand that it's been really hard for you to engage more with it. And so perhaps maybe you can surround yourself in ways where you can learn more. But get this study Bible, that'll help you. But uh, one of the things in how you can continue to grow in that is that just, you know, as, as we are here at church, I encourage you, we have a thing on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. in the morning, uh, and we'll feed you lunch. It's called Audio Bible Tribe. People in our church come together, and they listen to the Bible for about an hour or 15 minutes. Pastor Clay usually is there, and he would actually sort of go over what you're going to be listening to what you're going to be reading, go over the significance of it, and the people would engage with questions after like there's break time, they'd ask them certain questions. That's a great way for you to learn. On Wednesday nights at the well, which is like a prayer service, there's always a teaching, a scriptural teaching that happens on our Wednesday nights. I encourage you guys to come and be a part of that. Make that an important aspect to your growth and, 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 and wanting to learn uh, from God in that way, right? Our small groups, Bible were never meant for you to read in isolation. It was always meant for us to read in groups. Now you can do that through small groups, our Friday morning prayer meeting, oh man, you're all missing out if you don't come to Friday morning prayer meeting, and all, most all of you are missing out. It's just a small group of us. Mama's there all the time. You know why it's so cool? Because we read the passage that we're going to focus on on Sunday, and it's about like eight of us sometimes, maybe ten, and you know, David's there, and you know, David's a New Testament professor. And it's like Jesus, man. I mean, like people reading it, they're asking him all these questions and there is no bad question that you can ask David. And he's there with his big smile and his nice mustache and he just starts teaching, (laughs) teaching you, teaching you what the context is. And I just sit there sometimes, I'm like, this is beautiful. People are learning the text and then when they come here, they're ready to go deep into it, right? And so I encourage you to think about those things. Those are ways in how you can get involved. Do you know in the summer, you know what David's going to teach in the summer? Check out the title of the class. Biblical Interpretations for Life Transformation. You all should sign up for that. You all should sign up for that. Those are opportunities. It's like the golf lessons. You hire a pro to help you to swing better, right? It's like you hiring, or not hiring, you signing up and being a part of something where David can then teach you. One of our pastors can teach you more of the scriptures because as you do that, you'll start to have a, a burning sensation in your heart for God's word because you're learning things about him that's gonna set you free and open your eyes to things that you've never seen before. And then as you live life, you're gonna be able to approach life and it's situations that life presents to you with those lenses on now that you start learning about God. And it's a beautiful thing, it really is. Um, my second semester in seminary, uh, I took an ethics class called Discipleship in a Secular Society, and I had to take it. Uh, it was, I had to take an ethics class. And people that I've asked before, they said Dr. Glenn Stassen is one of the best ethics professors at school. And so I took it, and um, it changed my life. In that class, we looked at the Bible, and we, and we looked at God's heart and passion for the poor and the oppressed. I always thought that as Christians, it's just good as Christians, seeing it more as like a noble obligation to go and serve the poor. Go and feed the homeless. Go to a missions trip and go help poor people. I always thought that we were bringing Jesus to them. This class transformed me because what I learned in this class was that Jesus is already with the poor. So you go to them out of a sense of reverence, not of a sense of noble obligation. 
It's a sense of worship. And so if you want to meet Jesus, you got to be around the poor and the oppressed. A lot of us, we like to pick who we think we're going to meet Jesus through, whether it's like a pastor, whatever we think. God doesn't give you that option. He says, if you want to meet me, Matthew 25, whatever you do to the least of these, you do it unto me. And so that just, I'm telling you, there was a burning sensation for the entire semester. And in that class, I learned that over 2,100 verses in the Bible talks about God and the poor. In the Old Testament, it's the second greatest theme. Number one is idolatry, and many times those two were linked together. In the New Testament, I learned that one out of every 16 verses talk about the poor. In the, gospel, uh, in the Gospels, one out of every 10 verses, and in the Gospel of Luke, in the past 16 months, what we've been focusing on, one out of every seven verses talk about the poor and the oppressed. And then in the book of James, one out of every five. The vision of this church would not have been birth unless I took this class. Because no one had ever taught me that this is a big part to our Christian faith. No one had ever taught me that. And when this professor helped me to see this, and we studied the Sermon on the Mount for almost the entire semester, it literally changed my life. And the vision of this church came through this class. I wonder how many visions you have not been able to see because you haven't surrounded yourself with some people to help you to go deeper in God's word. Because that's where you get the revelations of him. And that's when you hear God speak to you in a powerful way. To have a meaningful relationship with God, you need to know this God more. And you do when you can interpret the scriptures better, the Bible better. That's the second thing. And the last thing, we have a meaningful relationship with Jesus when we break bread together when we break bread together. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and, be, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, meals, breaking the bread, when Jesus breaks bread in, in the Gospel of Luke, it is a revelation of God. You have to know that. And you know, we've focused on this for the past 16 months. Remember when Jesus broke the bread and he fed 5,000 people? That was a, a major revelation that God is miraculous. He can do great things. Remember when Jesus broke bread with Zacchaeus? He chose to live a life of poverty after that because he was so deeply impacted. His heart was burning for God. Remember when Jesus was, with, it was in the upper room with his disciples and he broke bread with them during Passover and he shared in that sacred, the very last meal that he had. There's something so sacred about breaking bread with Jesus Christ. And there's two ways in how we do that. The first way is through communion. We're going to do that today. That as we observe communion, because Jesus says that do this in remembrance of me, we're realizing that we come to the table and we come and we feast on Jesus. But what it means is this, that not only does God forgive you of your sins, but God thinks the world of you. And he really wants to fellowship with you. That's why we observe communion. It's this reminder on a monthly basis that God has done everything he possibly could in his own power to fellowship with you. Now it's up to us to say, God, let's do this together. Let's engage in our relationship in a very honest way. 
And so it's a reminder of that. And that's the beautiful thing about communion. If you missed that sermon that Doug preached a couple, about a month ago on communion, you have to listen to that sermon because it was so powerful. It was so powerful. You have to do that. And so that idea of communion, but you know, you don't just do that in isolation. You don't just observe communion in isolation because we all do it together, don't we? And so what we're reminded is that what brings us together, what unifies us is not our ethnicity. It's not our age. It's not how much money we have or don't have, but what unifies us is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, amen? We all come together and we receive his body and his blood. It unifies us. And so then what does that teach us? That teaches us that then we can break bread together, that we can have fellowship, that we can have community, that Jesus says that when two or more gathered in my name, I will be there. So in order to have a meaningful relation with God, get this, you have to have meaningful relations with other people. Not a lot, but just a few. Jesus had three really meaningful relations with his disciples out of the 12. And so it's important that we really think about this and ask ourselves because we cannot be in a meaningful relationship with a God that we don't see if we're not in meaningful relations with people that we do see. We have to be open. And you gotta, you know, when you break bread together, can I encourage you as you break bread, let it be an opportunity where you can welcome honesty with one another. Let it be an opportunity where you can share honestly with each other. I mean, social media has really sort of created this illusion to make you believe that you actually have relationships and they're meaningful, but you really don't. I mean, if anything, I think social media is the, is the great superpower today that, that sort of creates within us a desire to be dishonest, even though we value honesty. Because a lot of times we showcase our lives and it looks a lot better than it really is. Our marriage looks a lot better than it really is. We think we, have more, we want people to know that we're having more fun than we really are. And it's so amazing because social media has really isolated us in such a way that we don't know how to relate and have meaningful relationships with each other anymore. And I think the young ones are the ones that's being mostly impacted by it. But a year ago, my, my nephew and my nieces came over and um, they're all around the same age as my kids. And I just saw them in our dining room and all they were doing, they're on their phones. And I said, guys, put that down, go upstairs and share what's in your heart. Do you know what they did? They laughed at me like I was telling a joke. <laughs> and even my brother-in-law and my sister were just cracking up like I was actually telling a joke. I said, guys, I'm being dead serious. Go upstairs and share what's in your heart, your family. And we don't do that anymore, do we? And that's why we don't have these meaningful relationships. We don't know what it means to break bread. There's something sacred that happens when we break bread in Jesus' name. Jesus is there and we get to enter into that kind of community with him. And we have people that can be very honest with us to share some things about us that hopefully we can learn to eventually accept so that we can be better as people. You know, I'm talking about David a lot because I miss him. He's on a sabbatical for the next month. He's in Asia and he's celebrating his 40th anniversary with his wife. But you know what David says? He says, when you don't have community, you become weird. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Think about people who don't have community. They're a little off. They're a little weird. Man, this Christian life, God wants to have a meaningful relationship with you. 
May your heart burn for that truth. Our God who created us, even though we mess up all the time, thinks the world of us. And if we can, he would love it today if you would be willing to enter into a meaningful relationship with him. But he wants you to know that that can't happen if you don't have a meaningful relationship with other people in your life. So what's holding you back today? What's holding you back from being honest? What's holding you back from devoting your life and your passion to the Bible? I guarantee you nothing bad will happen to you in your life if you devote your life to wanting to interpret the scriptures more. Only good things will happen. What's holding you back from breaking bread with God today? What's holding you back from breaking bread with others? I wouldn't be here today, um, kind of where I'm at. I've had, I'm very fortunate to have a few, a few, just a few relationships with people that have really impacted my life in a huge way. And one of them, and you know, not everyone, but a good number of you know who this man is. Alex G. He's a pastor in Wisconsin. Alex is 10 years older than me, but we're brothers. And he always treats me like a little brother. <laughs> Meaning like, you know, he treats me like a little brother. <laughs> like we're in hotels and he'll take a pillow and start beating me with it, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, um, he hasn't come and spoken at our church in a long time. And uh, he'll be here in two weeks. He's going to be preaching at Metro. And it's been probably six, seven years since he's last preached at our church. He's done and done seminars and workshops, but he hasn't preached at Metro. But he's really excited about it. He'll be here in two weeks. But um, that guy has helped me so much because we've allowed ourselves to be honest with each other. And I like to think that I've been honest with him enough so that he could grow as well. But the two things where he's really helped me, number one, is he's really helped me to embrace my Korean heritage. Four years ago, I was getting ready to go on my uh, second sabbatical, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just going to stay home again, and he said, no, you should go to Korea and spend your sabbatical out there. And I said, what? I was like, we don't got money for that. He said, you should just pray and, like, you know, be intentional, and God could provide. But he says, you have to, because he says, you have shame being Korean still because of the kids that used to make fun of you for being one. And you should go and go, go to your hometown have your mom show you where you were born. Go visit the house in which you lived in and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. I'm thinking, I, I want to do that. I want to check it out. Go meet relatives that you've never met. And he says, and the other thing is this, you've got to know what your Korean name means. And I didn't know what my Korean name. He always asked, what does your Korean name mean? And I just didn't know. And you know what my Korean name is? Chung-kun. It's not a typical Korean name. My wife is laughing right now because... <laughs> She has given me so much shame <laughs> about my name. <laughs> I mean, she would always like, when, she, when we started dating, she goes, what, your Korean name is Chung-kun? Why would your parents be that mean and name you Chung-kun? You know, it's, it's the equivalent of like, if you had a son and, and your parents, like, like you name your son Bubba. Like, you don't name a kid Bubba today. Like, in 2018, maybe back in, like, the 60s and 70s you did that, but you don't do that anymore. And so she'd always make fun of my name. And he goes, you got to find out your name, and you got to know what it means. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do it. My mom didn't know what it means. My dad was too old, and when he was alive, it just, he wasn't able to process, and he wasn't able to tell me. And so that was one of my missions. And, you know, went to Korea. We had a phenomenal time. Visited the house that I lived in for a few months before I came to the States. We went to the hospital in which I was born in. Now it's this major hospital in Incheon. It's crazy. And, uh, and so I, my, my, my aunt, she is um, 
an English teacher. She's actually, she got quite wealthy doing this, and she is an excellent English teacher. And she's also a real educated woman. So I said to her, I said, I said, auntie, can you let me know what does Chengkun mean? And, she's, and so she wrote it out in Chinese characters, because in order to know what a name means, you have to know the Chinese characters. And so she wrote it out, and she said, the literal translation of your name means deep roots. But the best English translation of your name means righteous roots. I said, what? <laughs> I looked at my wife and I said, how do you like me now, baby? Come on, righteous roots? I was like, this is crazy. My mom and dad didn't even know God was going to come to be a pastor. But they gave me a name called Righteous Roots. I was blown away by that. I mean, it was like one of those moments, honestly. There's no more shame in my main. There's no more shame in being Korean. I'm Righteous Roots. <laughs> and, you know, I, I emailed Alex that. I was like, yo, I just want you to know my name means Righteous Roots. We celebrated that together. You know, when I call him on his phone, he doesn't have my name Peter on. It's Chung Kun. And, you know, uh, he, he, he called me this week, and he met this, this uh, couple students came from Trinity Seminary. They're international students from Korea. They're much older than me. But they came up to take his African-American history class, his black history class, and he said, what's your name? And the guy says, my name is Chung Kun. I'm like, you met a Chung Kun in Madison, Wisconsin? I live, in Pal- I live in this area. I've been to L.A. for three years. I've never met a Chung Kun in my life. And he says, hey, doesn't your name mean righteous roots? And the guy was blown away that he knew what his name meant. (laughs) Righteous roots. Oh, man, I thanked him for that. I would have never known it if he didn't encourage me to do that. But the thing that I'm indebted to this man the most about is that I don't know what kind of parent I would be today if it wasn't for this man. He has modeled, I have never met a better parent than him to his daughter, Lexi. I have sat with him in car in a car comment when he's talked to her and just discipling her, helping her overcome things and fears. I've learned so much from this man on how to be a parent. But when my daughter Christina was eight and she's 16 now, she'd come home from school. Daddy, let's do homework. He said, all right, open it up, let's do it. And I don't know what came over me. Like, I didn't have a model of how to be a good parent. You just heard my story about my father. I didn't have a model. I didn't know what it meant to be a good parent. And for some reason, as she was getting things wrong and as she wasn't able to read properly sometimes and she was skipping over words and I kind of like started saying, are you dyslexic? Like, what's going on with you? How come you can't read this? There's a doll right here. How come you're skipping that? And she wouldn't get the math that apparently to me, obviously, because I'm older, it was so easy, but she couldn't even add arithmetic and I would just yell at her and I would just curse at her and I would just say horrible things and many times this young little girl would start writing doing her homework in tears you see tears going onto her paper I knew I was traumatizing her I knew it wasn't good because she didn't come home anymore and said daddy let's do homework she dreaded it I prayed about it I fasted about it nothing helped it, got, it didn't get any better And I was so broken about it because I knew that if I continue this pace that I am going to utterly ruin this girl. And I only felt more pressure because she got her state scores back and she got a 70 in her math and her English. A 70. That's like a D plus, C minus. 
And so I just put more pressure on her to do better and to perform and to do better. And Alex came and he was preaching one Sunday, so he came early. And so I had a meal with him. I just broke down and I just said, Alex, I'm a monster. I don't know what I'm doing. I just cannot control myself with my daughter. I get so angry at her and I just say the most most horrible things to her. And he says, you know, don't be offended. But he says, you're a lot less affectionate to Christina than you are to your daughter, Kayla, and Christian, and your son, Christian. And he says, I think you're doing that because she's disappointing you in school. And I said, no, that's not the case. I was like, the reason why I'm less affectionate is because, you know, she's getting older. She's turning into like a little woman. You know, Kayla and Christian are little babies, so it's okay. And he says, Peter, your daughter is eight years old. (laughs) What are you telling me she's turning into a little woman? He says, you don't think she's going to think you love her less and you love Kayla and Christian more because you show her a lot more affection. You kiss them in the lips and you hug them all the time. And I was in such denial with that honest conversation. I didn't believe him. I said, no, you're wrong, Alex. No, I would never do that to my daughter. I was like, I love her the same. And the next day, woke up Sunday early in the morning, and I was in the shower, and it became my sanctuary. God just showed it to me. Because she was failing me in school, I was showing her less affection, and I just broke down with that reality. I did. I just, I felt so guilty. I went upstairs to her room. I woke her up. It was early, and I just said, I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? Great thing about kids is that they always are willing to. And I said, if I ever do it again, you just got to say, Daddy, you're doing it again. And that day at church, she was standing next to me. I started hugging her, kissing her in the lips in front of everyone. And she's like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? I said, I just, I just love you, girl. I just love you. A month later, she took a math test, and she got a 96. Eight years later, she's a junior in high school. And we found out about two, three weeks ago that she made the National Honor Society. Yeah, pretty good. I've never achieved that, so I don't know what that feels like. (laughs) I don't know where I would be today, where my relationship would be with her if Alex didn't confront me. Because I was hurting the one I loved the most. I couldn't do anything about it. I was so messed up and had so many blind spots to me that I needed somebody like him to see it and to confront me and shake me with it. Who are you hurting today? You see, this meaningful relationship with God and other people, it's that serious. Because if you continue to live in isolation and if you continue to surround yourself with people that are not going to be honest with you, that no matter what you do, you're going to end up hurting the people you love the most. And you're going to hate yourself for it because you're destroying them. And if I didn't have a friend like that, I don't know if my daughter and I would even be talking today. But I'm thankful that we have a vibrant, loving relationship. Because I've had to learn eight years ago that I will not show my daughter less love because she's disappointing me. If you can have a meaningful relationship with God and you can have meaningful relations with other people, then you don't have to find your identity in your successes. You don't have to love your job so much because you'll know that there are other things more important in your life than that. 
And you're going to be able to stand so firm and strong. Why? Because no matter what happens, what hurricanes or tsunamis of life that you encounter, you're going to be strong because you are going to be rooted in God and rooted in other folks that you have a meaningful relationship with. And so will you today engage with your God? Will you be honest with him? Will you be honest with some of your friends? Will you begin to devote your life to knowing more of the Bible and having others help you to interpret it when you struggle with it? And will you be able to break bread with God here in communion today? Knowing that this is God's thundering statement that he thinks the world of you and he would like nothing better than to know you and have fellowship with you today. And will you let that be the catalyst for you to go out now and have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with other people? I hope that will be the case for all of you today. Let's pray.